Welcome to the Inventory Nation podcast, a show designed to bring you the incredible voices and stories of veterinary professionals coast to coast, all while helping you to manage and control your inventory. I'm your host, Nicole Clausen, coach, advisor, and champion for veterinary teams and their inventory. Joining you live from the mountains of Montana, welcome to the show. Hello, welcome back to the Inventory Nation podcast. As always, I am so excited that you're here. So today is going to be an extra juicy episode. So as you probably know, controlled substances are an aspect of managing a practice that's often clouded in mystery, uncertainty, and a whole lot of questions. So today is going to be a very special episode where our guest and I will be clearing the air and shedding some light on some common controlled substance myths and tall tales. So in this episode, I'm absolutely delighted to introduce you to my very dear friend, Jack Teitelman, the CEO of Titan Group. Jack has more than three decades of continuous leadership expertise in government, security, law enforcement, and private industry. For over 26 years, he worked for the Department of Justice and the Drug Enforcement Administration as a special agent and supervisory special agent, gaining extensive experience in all facets of complex criminal drug conspiracy investigations. He received numerous awards and commendations. He is now the CEO and founder of Titan Group, and he is today's guest expert. Welcome to the show, Jack. I'm so glad to have you here. Thank you. Wow. I mean, you say all that stuff, and it just, uh, I don't know if that's all true. <laughs> <laughs> wow, man. No, but thank you so much. Um, and, you know, just for everybody out there, um, Nicole, we met, you know, at least about five years ago. And truly, I, and I will tell everybody, you are, you know, one of the, 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 most, the smartest people I've met in the, in the vet world. I, you know, your intelligence, you know, it, you, you, you've, You've made me very happy to to meet you and, and call you my friend. So oh, and I'm so you. glad you brought me on. Thank you. Thank you. That means a lot to me. So tell us your story. How did you get started as a DEA compliance expert in vet med? Like, how did that haul go down? Wow. So, you know, spending 26 years as a DEA agent and then getting near the end of my career and wondering what I was going to do. And it just so happened we're in the middle of an opioid epidemic, right? And I had worked several heroin pill cases that got me involved in this world. And that's when I, um, you know, a, a, a good friend of mine is like, you should think about starting your own little compliance company when you retire and, and go out and, you know, and, and work with doctors and pharmacists and hot. Notice he never <laughs> said veterinarian, right? So I'm all excited. And um, I, we had an old dog at the time and, and uh, my vet would come to the house and it just so happened that she came and she's like, hey, what are you doing now that you're, you know, you're retiring? And I'm telling her all this exciting stuff. And she goes, what about us? She's like, us veterinarians. She's like, we don't get any training. You know, when it comes to the DEA stuff, I'm telling, she goes, nobody out there knows what they're doing. And then all we're counting on is just, you know, is you know, is word of mouth and, and, and maybe bad habits passed down from somebody to somebody so um, she opened my eyes to it, and that turned into my, you know, doing her clinic. And next thing I know, uh, nine of her friends <laughs> were at the clinic that showed up and just came over. And that, and you know, so that's kind of how it started. My very first client was a veterinarian, 
And um, of course, we, you know, we are, we're everywhere. I mean, we're, you know, like I said before, we're working in every vertical and in every industry out there. But, you know, the, that's how, you know, the, how I, I started in the vet world and, and then found out really quick that doing DEA compliance in, in the veterinary, you know, call it, you know, in, you know, the industry is completely different than doing it on the human side. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and you, I, we've worked together on this stuff. And, and so, you know, it is, it's, it's different. We, you guys, you know, call, you know, call things different. It, it, you know, for, for a DEA person to come into the vet world and only worked in a CVS pharmacy, they're not going to understand where they're at. Right. So, um, you know, that's, you know, that's, that's kind of, you know, you know, that's the little story about how we got started. And, and now six years later and probably close to 300 vet hospitals, you know, um, not much under the sun with DEA compliance that we haven't seen in the vet world. <laughs> yeah. And I, I'm, it's so important, I think, the work that you're doing because, you know, so I've been in vet med for like over 15 years and literally like I didn't know that a biannual inventory count was a thing until like I was like literally had been in this field for like six years. And I was like, wait, we have to do what? So I feel like yeah. it's just so important that the work that you're doing um, and kind of like dispelling those bad habits and wait a second. No, here's the actual information. Yes. And, and, and you know, I, I was giving a seminar, you know, a couple of days ago to about 50 veterinarians in upstate New York. And I always start every one of my talks with everybody that's done a biennial inventory in the last two years, put your hand up. Not one person put their hand up. So, you know, right there, you are, you know, if you're not doing cycle counts, if you're not doing any counts at all, you're going to fail your DEA, you know, or or state inspection right from the get go because you haven't done that one little thing. Yeah. That one thing. And, um, and, and it's truly, and it's truly a problem because, and, but I mean, I go everywhere and I mean, I'm, I'm, I put a flag up, say, do your biennial inventory. You got to do your, everyone do your biennial inventory. And I, you know, and that's, you know, that becomes the homework assignment for everyone. <laughs> after I say that, go do it because it's going to come back to haunt you. Yeah. It really will. Yeah. So if yeah. you're listening, if you haven't done that, do it right now. <laughs> Pause this episode, yeah. go do it. It's <laughs> your homework assignment as soon as you leave. <laughs> so before we kind of dive into some myths that we hear often, what do you think, just as kind of like the craziest thing that you've ever heard or experienced regarding controlled substance and vet med, like give us a wild story. Well, well, um, and I've had a few. So I, I guess when it comes, when it, when it comes to, um, when it comes to ordering, you know, I I've had several, I've had, I've had several, several vets that were convinced they did not need they did. They did not have to do any paperwork. That record, that logbooks, that you know, they were they were told that they just that they were no longer needed. Mm-hmm. And you know, you walk in, you and you're like, well, can you show me that <laughs> teletype, or did something come out, you know, from DEA recently that I don't know? Because I guess I'm out of business if we, <laughs> you know, if we're not doing record keeping anymore. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and that's been more than once that I've been to a location. And asked for the logbooks, and I got to look like, well, the computer's doing it for us, right? I mean, we don't. And, and you know, I'm like, well, I don't know. Maybe it is. I, I don't know. You know, what kind of do you have a Cubex? Do you have like an OmniCell, or, or are you using some, you know, vets something other than just you know hoping that 
it's doing it for you somewhere within some computer system. <laughs> right. It's so, doing it in the cloud. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, so I've had several times, you know, of, oh, I have to do what? You know, so those, you know, those are, those are kind of, you know, I mean, remember when, you know, for anyone who's a doctor out there, who's a veterinarian, you know, when you, when you get your DEA registration, that's a contract, right? You've signed a contract with the government saying that I understand every part of DEA compliance from soup to nuts from the beginning to end. And now I understand what my, this awesome responsibility is to buy and purchase and store and dispense and administer all these drugs. But obviously, you know, some of these people didn't take the test or study for the test. So, you know, it's, it, it, it's, it's, and, and one of these was, was not an older doctor. Like I would say, Oh, some 80 year old doctor or some country doctor. Okay. I can understand that person not, you know, thinking, but a brand new vet veterinarian, you know, less than under 30 years old telling me this, that one kind of blew me away. Yeah. So I could go on and on with the crazy stories of, <laughs> of what's happening inside the vet clinics, but we'll leave, we'll leave that to everyone's uh, imagination because they've all been there. Yeah. And I'm sure that they can, they can probably tell me stories that would blow my mind too, but totally. So let's dive into some myths. So first and sure foremost, enough. can mixtures like, Kitty Magic or TKX be made. So, can you make mixtures of controlled substances, and then do you need to log them, or like what's you know how do you go about that process? So, yes, you can make those mixtures. I mean, you're you're making a compound if you if you really think about it. But, um, you know, Kitty Magic and TDX or TDK, if you're making it patient specific then it doesn't have to have its own log, right? It's, you know, ketamine came out of its ketamine log, and this came out of this log, and it's out, and we, we make it up and put it in a shot, and we use it. But if you are in a, like, you know, one of our big equine hospitals down in, you know, in Tennessee who's making giant bags of, you know, ketamine mixtures because they're going to do a bunch of horse, you know, procedures, that's a new compound. That's a new mixture. We, we will then create a new log book for that work it all the way down and then you know one log page for it and then that'll that goes into you know its own separate you know binder so um you know that's the, it, you just have to be careful that you know if you're going to make a giant pile up and use for a, a whole bunch of stuff you know you've created a new compound for multi-use and it, it, it really should be tracked that way Yes. If that makes sense, right? It does. Yeah. So it's definitely allowed to make the mixture, but yeah. depending on if it's like you're making a mixture for one patient or if you're making a mixture for multiple patients, it kind of should be logged, you know, appropriately depending on how you're using it. Correct. Okay. So then another one that I hear a lot is should everyone have their own DEA license and order their own drugs. So each veterinarian has their own license and their own set of drugs. That there is one company out there that loves to do that, right? And I think it's Banfield um, or, or something that sounds like Banfield. I, I think it's a logistical nightmare <laughs> because you now have, let's just say you've got 10 doctors and this, the, we went down and, and, and this happened to us in Texas where um, a company decided that that was the, the right way to, to go, except they were all using the same storage. So the drugs were getting mixed up. And inevitably they got mixed up. And 
and they all decided that, well, why can't we just use the same logbooks? And, and, and then so before you knew it, they had 10 different drug inventories that got all mixed up together in one safe and the record keeping they were trying. And, and I was like, you guys have just, you know, just destroyed what would have been the individuality of this, you know, by going backwards to the way it was before everybody, they kept trying to go back to the way it was before because that felt normal to them. Right. Mm -hmm. And it felt right, which is, which is the correct way to do it. Um, because you'll run into those issues. And then you'll also run into issues where one doctor's like, Hey man, I'm out of, of euthanasia. I'm out of youth. Can I, can I get some of you? And then they start transferring amongst each other with no paperwork. You see how, how that can go. And, you know, cause I mean, it doesn't matter if you're a doctor with a registration number and back to your first question, you know, you know, yeah, Hey, everyone, you know, if you're, if you're a vet, you should have a DEA registration. Um, because the Vet Mobility Act was written specifically for veterinarians, not for veterinary technicians, not for nurses or not for anesthesiologists, because anesthesiologists tried to get away with taking all their drugs from a from their um, hospital and then going all throughout the city with all their drugs doing what, you know, doing vet medicine. You can't do if, if you want to do that as a human doctor. You have to have a DEA registration at every single location you're going to work at. And you have to have your um, a stock of drugs at every single. So if you're an anesthesiologist going to work at those ambulatory care center, ambulatory surgical centers, of course, you know, in, you know they want to take their black bag of Profifol and everything and just go from one to one to one. But um, th- that's a true case, by the way, that act- actually the, they, they tried to, you know, they tried to jump on the bandwagon saying that, well, the veterinarians can do it, right? And they're like, did you go to vet school? <laughs> no, I went to medical school. So then you can't do that. Yeah. So that was, uh, yeah. So if you're a vet, definitely you should have a DEA registration. And if you think you want to run a practice with 10 different DEA numbers, 10 different drug inventories, 10 different sets of record keeping, that means 10 different biennials, which are going to be done on all different days, right? So yeah, totally, um it would, it, it's just never, it doesn't work well um, for every place that I've been in. And the other thing uh, I'll throw out there is liability. So anyone, you know, if you're out there and you work for a corporation and they want to use your DEA number because you want it to be the registrant, that, you know, the who's going to get in trouble when the crap hits the fan? You are the registrar, right? Not ABC Corporation, at least not right off the bat. Yeah. That'll come later once DEA realizes that you work for a big corporation, and then they're going to start knocking it, you know, some of the other doors. But, um, but so that, you know, yeah. So it, 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 it's certainly, I'm not a fan of, of doing it that way. Yeah. That just sounds like, I mean, one set of logbooks and one set of drugs is kind of a logistical mess sometimes. So I cannot even imagine extrapolating that to every doctor having their own set of drugs, their own set of logs, their own set of invoices and just, yeah, sounds right. I mean, so yeah, you just described, uh, you know, the whole, it it just be and imagine if 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 every one of them was ordering schedule two. <laughs> I don't right. even want to think about it. I need an yeah. advil so just to think about that question. Another layer of, of, <laughs> of, of, 
appraisers. So. <laughs> yes. All right. So now that we kind of like you hinted a little bit about like mobile vehicles. So how should controlled substances be handled for mobile vehicles? Can it be just be clapped in the glove box? Does it need to be like, you know, can it just be thrown in the little seat front yeah. seat there? The, it's funny. The glove box always, you know, and they're like, well, the glo- if the glove box is locked and the car is locked and it has an alarm, doesn't that fit the double, lo- you know, that double lock thing? And I'm like, well, technically, but let me show you how quickly we can break the window and then just pry that open. So, look, we have a lot of, of, of different type of veterinarians that we work with that are mobile, that are mobile vets, whether they're euthanasia doctors, right, which is, seems to be the most that we work with lately or, or just, you know, regular house call doctors, equine, which is, you know, we work with a lot um, and regular, you know, and then every other animal on the farm, they, yeah. they think about, right. So I was just with two of them. So um, it, you know, the rules aren't any different, but what I want everyone to, the word I want everyone to, to realize you know, or to, to remember is temporary storage. So, and, and, and I'll come back to that, but where, if, if you are going out in the field, the address of your registration is where those drugs are supposed to end up at the end of the day. But what happens if you're 200 miles that way and you're going to, and your house is only 50 miles coming back that way, you're not driving 200 miles back to the office just to drop off some, you know, some drugs into the safe. So that's where temporary storage comes in is that we need to have, you know, another safe, you know, at, at the location that we can, that we can call appropriate temporary storage specifically if something happens like, you know, that you can't get back to the hospital and, you know, it sounds stupid. Oh no, DEA is not going to care this and that. Well, you know, we have had instances where people have left their bag in the car and it was stolen because they were just tired. They came home, they left it and, and, you know, and then it disappeared. So even though you're, you're, you're keeping the drugs, not at the address where they're supposed to be. I don't see any DEA person that would give you a hard time. If you're like, look, I wasn't driving 200 miles back. I would probably kill myself. I'd be half asleep. You know, they would go, okay, you know, this is a, you know, this is a gun safe, blah, 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 blah in my house, you know, and, and put it this way. When I was a, an agent, Way back when, you know, we had machine guns that we kept locked in our back of our car, but they were, you know, they were, they had locked special locking mechanisms, no different than how DEA would expect the drugs go into some type of safe that's in your vehicle, you know, whether it's hidden underneath, you know, if you're an equine doctor, you probably have that big setup anyways, built into the back of your truck, mm-hmm. right? And those are great. You know, you can secure, you know, you can lock those. And then, you know, close everything down and, and those are good to go. So it's not an issue. Um, you know, you just got to make sure that you have appropriate storage in your vehicle that you can lock the drugs into because, you know, you might want to go in, you, know, you might need to go in somewhere and, and you're not going to bring everything with you. Um, so, you know, so, you know, and, and, and then also remember that when you're out and if you're doing a lot of work in the field, that's when you want to kind of do one bottle one log sheet. I know we've met, we've talked about this, you know, in the past, you know, because that's where kind of bottle in bottle out. If you're, you know, if you're going back to say your office and you have an inventory 
clerk or someone you've got to pull a dispensary. You know, we we don't want anybody coming back and saying, hey, I need another bottle of this. Well, hand me your empty bottle with your log sheet. Right. So that we you know that we can you know, we'll give you another bottle so you can go out. That's how we handle the equine medications. You know, um, and I know that, you know, one of the questions coming up is, I think, about about log books. Right. I think that was something that we were going to talk about. Yes. Kind of rolls right into that one. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So what can be. Oh, I guess we'll just skip ahead a little bit and switch places. But yeah. so what are some good Sorry. examples of logbooks? Like what's acceptable? Like what are some things that, you know, I think logbooks have like some of the biggest like myths about them. Cause it's like, oh, it has to be bound. It has to, you know, has to, has to, has to, has to. Yeah. Well, that's what aha wants you to think, right? It has to be bound. But, um, the only thing that I could find is an official government um, logbook that has to be bound was an ATF logbook. <laughs> it was the only thing that mentions of, of, of logbooks, right? So, and and I, I remember um, many moons ago, an old, an old grizzled D, DEA diversion investigator had told me, he goes, look, I don't care if the guy keeps everything on a napkin, <laughs> if he's got everything written on that napkin and it me and he can give it to me and it makes sense. Hey, if it works for you, it works for you. So, and I swear to God, it wasn't, it was probably, it was right before the pandemic. I went to a, uh, I went to a veterinary hospital and the guy handed me a box and there was, it was written on napkins. It was written on yellow stickies. <laughs> it was written on everything, not a log book, not one log sheet anywhere. He's like, I just keep my notes. He goes, I'm new to this world. I was a, you know, I was a farm doctor for 30 years and hurt my back. And now I'm trying to keep making a living. And I bought this little practice. He had no, he had, so he had, he really didn't understand the supply chain management of DEA, of, 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 you know, of, of drugs, of controlled substances. And, you know, so that was, he, he was starting over at a very, you know, not at a young age and having to basically learn a new language. Yeah. If you think about it. Cause he had never, you know, he had never done that. So, um, so law books can come just as human beings. They can come, you know, you know, giant, small, skinny, doesn't matter what, what, if you think about what your law books look like, right. All of the, every column is there for a reason, you know, the day, the drug, who gave that drug, the animal, the, the, the owner's name, you know, those are all very specific things that, that need to be in a law book, right. And even if you create your own, if you use a three ring binder, because that's all you can afford, you can't afford, maybe you can't afford an automated dispensing machine, right? Because those are expensive. Maybe you can't afford those big, you know, the aha bundles because, you know, you're just, you're starting out, you're new, you, you know, you don't have a lot of money, but you need to keep log books. Well, there's nothing saying you can't use a three ring binder and you can't make your own up, right? There's a million examples of log books on the internet that you could download and use. Mm hmm but you know, but for but for purposes of of veterinary, you know, of veterinary medicine, we we certainly don't want to be using napkins, right? Right. We you know what we don't want to be keeping everything in a box because although although DEA has to accept what you hand them in a box, you know, you're not giving they're not walking away with a warm fuzzy in their stomach. No, <laughs> you created an enemy, and and you know, and logbooks have to tell a story. And they have to, and, and if you think about it, everything in your DEA compliance, 
everything you do is telling a story to the DEA investigator. You're telling them a story about who I am. I passed a background investigation. I was authorized by my doctor or, or, or doctors to, you know, to work here. Um, you know, and, and when it comes to, and when it comes to logging, you know, even before the logging, right. You know, how, what did I order? That story has to be told and who ordered, does the doctor know you ordered? Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I mean, you know, I, I was explaining, you know, I was, I was, I was telling Nicole earlier that I've, I'm dealing with six pharmacy investigations where hundreds of thousands of pills were stolen. So you, you, you got to know who's, who's, who's working for you and who's placing those orders. So, so when it comes, you know, to the end, when it comes to, you know, to your logging, it's, it tells the story and that story has to follow everything before it and everything after it. So, and, and then if you make mistakes, if you have any issue that looks like it might turn into something that's looking like a pattern right on the back of your logbook, diary, diary, take notes, take notes. Right. I mean, you know, in my old life, we, we lived and die by our notes. I had surveillance notes. We had to write reports. All of that was important because two years from now when DEA shows up and they're going through your logbooks and they ask you a question, well, you can go, Oh, hold on, go to the back page. I have all my notes there. You know, because they might be questioning about a 50 mil bottle of fentanyl that was dropped. Mm-hmm. Right. And I want you want to make sure that we, you know, you can't remember that two years from now because you, maybe you will, maybe you won't, but your notes will bring that all back to life. Just like, you know, our surveillance note brought back what happened on a specific day, what we had to do, especially if, if we were being called to court, you know, to testify. Yeah. I don't remember what I did 10 years ago, right. but my notes will, will help me, right? Yeah. So, um, so, it so that's what like, it's all about, telling a good story. Yeah. So it sounds like for logbooks, it's much more important is what's actually in the logbooks versus what the like actual logbook is. Right. And yeah, correct. You know, and, you know, as long as we have the basics, you know, you know, you know, you know the who, what, when and where of, of law books, which is. For everybody out there, if you're not using the Coles or if you're using the AHA, those have the, those are you know the, have both of those are very good examples of what you should have in a logbook. And of course, you know you could be using Impromed, you could be using you know whatever your your internal um, electronic logging system. You might be using VetSnap now. You know VetSnap's now in hundreds of hospitals, and that is a fantastic um, electronic logbook solution, right? So. And there's, so there's, and I've only been in this world for six years and look at the changes yeah. you know, for me that have happened in, in six years, you know? So, and, and I mean, I, I mean, it, we're in 2000, you know, 23 soon. If someone asked me, should, you know, should everyone be using a, a regular logbook or should everyone at this point be electronic? You know, I, I think that, we're, I think we're getting close to being more towards everyone should be electronic and, and that those solutions should be, you know, very easy to use. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and I'm not, and I don't want to talk bad about anybody's products, but you know, when you, you can have electronic solutions out there, 
that once things go wrong and once you just start to have tons of discrepancies and you're not managing those discrepancies and you look back and you, you know, you're like, Oh my God, I've got six months of discrepancies <laughs> on my Quebec machine. What do I do? Right. right. We've talked about that. You know, I mean, you wake up one morning and you're like, how am I six months behind on all this stuff? Yeah. You know, and that, and that, then that become, and, and you know that if you're six months behind on that, you're certainly six months behind on a bunch of other stuff too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So, um, so compliance and, and, you know, and making sure that, you know, we at least get to a baseline and we try and stay at that baseline. That's the most important thing you can do. Um, you know, when it, when it, when it comes to trying to, to manage a bunch of cats that could be running around, you know, <laughs> herding cats <laughs> and roping the wind. <laughs> yeah. So. That makes total sense. So yeah. the other one that I hear all the time is the double lock on a safe. Oh, does the safe yeah. really need to have like a double lock or two locks on there? So the, the short answer is no. Um, you can have a gun safe that has, has a combination on it. You can have a safe that just truly uses a fingerprints. Um, they're, you know, they're out there now. They're, you know, they're, you can put a thousand fingerprints into them and, you know, they're, they're, they're a little expensive. Um, the double locked narcotic cabinets are, are really good if you want to only give access you know, you have to have one of the managers come up to actually, you know, to open it up. You know, it's like that double factor verification. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, just because, you know, it, it, we so we have two keys and if the both keys are on the key ring and, you know, you're carrying it around, <laughs> that doesn't stop drug diversion at all. Right. <laughs> First, it's just still going to open it up and get into it. So, you know, it, it's, you know, I, I've seen where they'll, you know, the maybe the back stock for some reasons in a big double lock cabinet and they'll keep one of the keys to it in a, in a cube in a cubex. So they're kind of hiding the one key for that, which is cool. Right. I, I, I love, you know, using a QB, you know, as a way to, to safeguard a key, you know, to something else, but um, no double locked is absolutely not a requirement. What's a requirement is that it has to be substantially constructed and it has to be locked down. Now, I don't care if it's one sh- sheetrock screw, you know, holding it to the cabinet. At least, at least you've tried, right? If you know, if you can't, if you can't bolt, if you don't have a four hundred pound safe, then you're going to have to bolt whatever you have to the wall, to a stud, you know, to the to your cabinet. It has to be secure. Um, I mean, recently, I've almost every place I've went in, I was able to pick up pick the safe up off the ground and I could have walked out with it. So if, if I'm able to do that, DEA is going to, obviously they're going to walk in and see that, you know, because remember in today's world, DEA expects everyone to have safes. They expect to have that. You understand what a, a substantially constructed something is. They expect you to have cameras, even though it's not something that is in the CFR. And they certainly expect you to have an alarm system, right? All of that I just talked about, I have been in places recently that didn't have either one or two or all three of those. So if something happens bad and then DEA shows up and you haven't, and that's something you guys haven't done, 
I would say outside of the biennial inventory, which 90% of you guys haven't done, go out there and make sure a, your alarm system's working that you have a, you know, that, you, that, that in the time to test, it's not when DEA shows up. <laughs> yeah. right? And, and, and make sure that at least you've got some camera looking at your controlled substance cabinet or the treatment area where you guys are working at. It could be as easy as a, a ring camera or, or whatever. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. DEA didn't put any restrictions on whether you spend $10,000 on the full, you know, suite of cameras or you spend, you know, 50 bucks on some cameras. Yeah. As long as, as long as they work for you and they become a good tool because they're only, they only work for us, you know, if we have, you know, at least 30 days worth of, of days of storage. So, I mean, give me a chance to come in and review some video of something that just happened. So maybe we can figure it out. Um, because a lot of times we'll go and they go, Oh my God, it was it turned on or, Oh, we only had it programmed for seven days. I know I'm jumping ahead, but, um, or just going into, I just went into a whole nother security area off the, off the safes, but, it's all, it all comes together because mm-hmm. remember, you know, you're responsible for those four walls of the facility and everything that happens, you know, you know, within, and you have to decide as if, as the DEA registrant, or, you know, if you're working for them, you know, what it is that at a minimum is going to secure those controlled substances and that you can argue that fact to DEA that this, you know, this system I had in and this storage and all this, I feel meets, you know, meets the requirements of the CFR. You know, if you can't do it, of course, get somebody like us or, or somebody else out there that's, that are security experts, you know, that, you know, that can help you. I mean, that, and that's one thing that, you know, we pride ourselves on is, is, you know, as we come from, at least I, you know, I, I came from the security world in DEA and I, re- I was in charge of all security and personnel for the whole New York field division. So, Everything that I did protecting not just, you know, the people inside the building, but all of the drugs that we seized. Think of it as the drugs that, you you know, that they have an event. We had to, those had to be, you know, recorded. We had to keep, you know, we had to do inventories of those every year. So what we're, what DEA is putting on you guys is no different what they're putting on what's happening internally when it comes to just trying to deal with, you know, inventorying and, uh, you know, a different set of control substances, mostly all Schedule One, but still, you know, the the safety, the security that was put in place for for storage of, you know, of, of a thousand kilos of of cocaine, in in reality, is really no different than you know the fentanyl that you guys are are trying to secure in a vet a vet clinic. That literally just blew my mind. I never, never, ever even thought about like what happens to all that stuff that the DE seizes. I don't know why yeah. I never thought about that, but that just blew my mind. Goes into a big, goes into a big warehouse, and then eventually, in the well, in early in the morning, a couple U-Haul trucks will show up. We load it up, and a bunch of heavily armed guys in cars with a bunch of machine guns follow that van out to Co- Covanta's. Um, uh, there's a place called Covanta in Long Island that has a gigantic furnace and, you know, that burns all the trash and we sit there, they close everything. We walk in and we throw it all into this, this area and they pick it up with these scoopers and bye-bye drugs. Wild, wild, yep. wild, wild. I never thought uh-huh. of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you guys can use a reverse distributor. We're just dumping them in a, in a gigantic vat of, uh, <laughs> fire right right. (laughs) 
So speaking of actually like waste or anything like that, mm-hmm. when is it acceptable to use a DEA form 41 versus something like an RX destroyer? If you have like waste or expired drugs or, you know, like I, I think there's a lot of like yes. unclear do you, like, yeah, around that. Gotcha. So we, we have to separate out um, administrative waste. So if you're if you are doing a procedure and you've got a bunch of tubing, you've had you know a CRI going, all sorts of stuff. That's a you know you, you pulled out five mils, but you only use three. What do I do? I got to waste this. None of that will be recorded on the DEA forty one form. That's all going to be in your in your logbooks. That's where you're going to put that waste in your logbooks. Anytime you do in house destruction. Meaning that you've you've got medication that has expired, and you we've gotten the approval to do in-house destruction using, you know, some drug buster. Then that's we would fill out the forty-one ourselves. We would take the inventory of what we're destroying, fill the forty-one out, and then we file it. We keep it in-house. Okay, so we don't file that with DEA. We don't mail that into DEA. That form is to be presented to DEA, and when they come in to do an audit, they're going to ask, do you, have any, do you have any 41s for us to review? And you'll hand that to them. So the, uh, the other way the 41, you, you will, you know, you'll interact with the 41 is if you, would, if you had sent your, your drugs to a reverse distributor. They're going to fill the 41 out for you. They're actually going to send a copy to DEA and then send you back a copy. So 41 is used for in-house disposal by yourself and a 41 will be sent to you by a reverse distributor after they destroy your drugs. That's the only time you use it. Don't use the 41 for all the administrative stuff. I'm glad you brought that up because I literally have seen that recently where that question is, you know, about using the 41 for administrative stuff. And, and we got in trouble for it. Uh, Well, I didn't get in trouble for it, but a facility was got in trouble for using a 41 for, for administrative waste. The DEA is like, this is an improper use of this form. This is a violation. And I went berserk. I'm like, it's not a violation because we wrote, we used the form the wrong way. How's that a violation? It was, a, and this is the other thing. This must have been the time of year where all the new DIs just came out of Quantico. Mm. This was a brand new version investigator. So something that should have taken five minutes took about two hours. And in the end, she, she was smashing us over the head for two pills. Two pills that we couldn't find. And, and, I, and I kept saying, we probably dropped them. Maybe they were crushed. Maybe they, were, they came as a half pill. I go, there's many explanations outside of just saying, to, you know, you're not perfect. Where are the two pills? So, you know, of course I laughed. You know, because I just told you we were dealing with 104,000 pills, <laughs> right? At the door, right? So to me, two pills is like, are you kidding me? So, but in the eyes of a, D, a brand new diversion investigator, oh my God, you're not perfect. How can you not account for all your medications? You know, and this is someone who's never even seen the chaos of what can, you know, what can be going on inside of a vet hospital. Yeah. Right. When you're busy. I mean, it, it, it's a very, very challenging environment specifically dealing with injectables, right? Forget pills. Pills are, you know, I mean, pills are easy to count. That, that, that should never even been an issue unless we're off hundreds, you know, right? And then, then you know, then that's, you know, that becomes another story. But, you know, one of the things that, you know, that is not really understood 
by DEA is is the environment is the veterinary environment. You know, that, you know that's just something they're not used to, mm-hmm. or the, or they're not used to ever even you know doing many of them. And, and it's not nothing to them. Um, you know, everything now is becoming. Um, there's a lot of AI involved, and DEA is looking at things. They're looking at veterinarians before when they never had that op- op- availability to look at them because now this is all because of the opioid epidemic, but new systems have been in place for tracking. So before when they're tracking all of the purchases of C2s across the whole ethos of, of, of the supply chain, well, all of a sudden they're looking at veterinarians now where they never looked at them before. And, you know, and, and, and that's where patterns come in and that's where their AI is, is looking at. Of, and, and this is also, this is what's important. If, you know, if you are delegating, um, that, that, that important part of your, of your job. If you delegated the ordering and you're using a power of attorney and you think that that's great, they've got it. No, you better, you still have to be on top of that. Right. You, you, if you're not, if you're not verifying every order, regardless, you know, even if you have power, look in a hospital, power of attorneys are everywhere and it's, it's impossible for the CMO to be vetting every order. But there's certainly other layers of management involved that are going to want to know why you're ordering X. Mm-hmm. You know, what have our par levels been? Are we, or why, why have we exceeded these par levels this month? For what reason? Because DEA is going to ask that question. Yeah. They, you know, they're going to call. Or your distributor is going to call you and say, hey, you know, you, you guys have never ordered C2s before. You know, is maybe, you know, is, hey, Doc, is that something you've just decided to do? What are you talking about? I don't even have two, two, two forms. So, you know, that's another story to come. Yeah. <laughs> it's too early to continue that story. But, yeah. um, so yeah, so that's, that's that in a nutshell. Makes so much sense. Much. Um, yes. so, so now <clears throat> what do you think is one thing like for everyone listening what is one thing you wish every single person knew about controlled substance regulatory compliance? If you could share just like one message, okay. what would it be? Hold on. What is that? I'm sorry. That's okay. Um, well, you heard me harp at the beginning about the biennial inventory. I know that that sounds just cheap and it just sounds like nothing, but that is so important because that gives us a starting point in a point in time, and it could be two years ago, but at least I know from there, I have a shot at, at doing an audit, right? Mm-hmm. We have a shot at trying to figure out what happened here. Because if we don't have that one stupid form, DEA is already going to be judging us. You Again, you signed a contract, and I guess you really don't know what you're doing with that registration. So maybe this is a good time for you to hand it over to us. Yeah. Right. I've had that happen. You probably heard, you've heard me harp about that. Never give up your registration. And we have to, you know, we'll fight tooth and nail to give up your registration. Maybe they're going to get it. They're going to do a show cause hearing and they're going to get it because we really screwed up, but they're not going to get it today. And you know what that does is it allows you to stay in business. It allows you to keep working and there's nothing they can do about it. It might take a few months, but at least for that month, we've been able to plan. You've been, you know, you're still, you're still able to, to make, you know, to make money, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, with, 
if you lose your DEA registration today, no one has, um, you know, a, a short-term plan in place other than having to hire another doctor yeah. to come in to be a registrar and to do all that. That's ungodly expensive, you know, and, it, and it's not feasible. That just, that can't be your, your business plan. Yeah, right? absolutely. That's not your, that can't be your insurance policy. No. <laughs> Right. And so speaking of biannual accounts, a lot of times somebody will say like, oh, I just counted mine last week. But it's a biannual account isn't just like like physically counting. Right. Right. It's so. You know, it it's. It's the physical count and then it's the form that goes with it. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's the time of day you did it. And who, you know, and did, did we have a witness, you know, with us when we did, who was the witness when we did the counts, right? So if you just did a cycle count, now don't get me wrong. If you're doing a full cycle count once a month, meaning you're counting every single controlled substance you have on a specific day, yet you've never done a biennial inventory, we can recover from that because we'll take one of those counts and we'll slap a biennial form on there and we'll just pretend that. We kind of know what we're doing, and, and DEA will go, oh, okay, but don't ever do that again <laughs> because we had we had consistent counts. Yeah. Right? If you have no consistent counts, and then they come in, like I said before, and they're looking – because they're going to get frustrated that they can't do the audit, right? It, it just be, – it, it becomes very difficult for them to, to figure – at that point – because you know we, we want to know what's been stolen we want to know what's missing if if that's what we're if that's what we're trying to figure out you know and 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 without you know without good record keeping look i can tell you this i have a, another hospital case that we just settled it was here in new jersey that the overall amount of pills that were missing was 300 okay the proposed fine was $5 million. Oh, my God. Okay? Okay. <laughs> what, we, what we negotiated it down to was 150000 but it wasn't the 300 pills that got us. It was the horrible record-keeping that DEA found once they came in. Mm. It, once they, it, it, record-keeping was an absolute mess. So DEA went through, and then at that point, they started taking every deficiency – was a check mark and each check mark was 15,000 or they $10,000. They went at 10,000. They went low, but that all added up to $5 million, you know? Oof. Oh, you know, oh, you, the two, two, the two, two, two form wasn't filled out correctly to, you know, they got every time to, they would get them on that. Um, of course they didn't have the right binding. It, it was everything you guys can yeah. imagine <laughs> the pile on. And then it becomes the pile on. Yeah. Because, you know, DEA and the U S attorney's office, their their mission now is to hurt people in the pocketbook. You know, sending out letters of admonition, um, you know, and giving people chances. Well, that that was all, you know, second chances, third chances, whatever. You know, in the middle of, of again, middle of the opioid epidemic doesn't make them look good. So one of the things that, of course, a $150,000 fine will, will hurt and maybe put most vet clinics out of business independence right um but that's the that was that's the only way that dea and the u.s attorney's office was able to make the distributors feel pain mm-hmm. was to really hammer them for billions of dollars still didn't put them out of business they're still 
you know, they're still fat and happy, but they're also, they've also brought this fine, happy environment to every other industry that I'm working in. And I have a, a mom and pop grocery store chain out in Utah that I'm working with that, that we're going to trial. And I can't even tell you what the proposed fund is because it's going to blow everybody's mind. And it's in excess of $50 million. And I'm telling you, there is no gross miss crazy conduct. There were two situations that happened and we don't have time to go over them because they're just too in depth. One was a pill mill doctor and one was somebody passing forged and fake prescriptions over a period of time. Um, but those those are the only two things that they had. But but then that was enough with the pile on that they pretty much have said, you're going to pay this big giant amount of money and, and we're going to probably put you out of the, the pharmacy business. Yeah. So that so that's a trial. Yeah. So we're literally they've. And so you think about this. They've had to hire a big giant law firm. Of course, you know, we're involved in it. And now I'm involved in it because I'm a witness because of everything that I've done to try and help them and due diligence and stuff that we put in place. And these are all things that, you know, everybody should, should think about is that we haven't even talked about. I know we've done all the myths and, 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 um, and stuff like that. But if, if, if nobody's out there is really, pre- you know, if, if you hadn't had somebody come in and really stress your, your practice, right. Can you pass a DEA inspection? You know, what does that feel like? And, and just, the, the stress and tension is something you want to go through prior before DEA comes in, right? Because part of that exercise, as we both know, is how to respond to their, their questions mm-hmm. and how to answer those questions, right? We, we certainly don't want the girls up front talking to the DEA guys because they will say things that they're going to ask them questions because they want them to say, oh, well, no, we don't do that. Yeah. Or yeah, we take back medications, you know, when we let people bring all the medicine back to, I mean, things we don't want anyone when DEA shows up, nobody talks to them except for the DEA registrant and whoever can make them very happy until, you know, maybe the doctor gets back or to you or to whatever's going to happen. That's if, if one thing I can get across of, you know, not, we're not here to, have to talk about how to survive a DEA inspection, but when they do show up, everybody should at that point zip. You know, you don't have to talk to them unless you're the registrant. You know, you can be very pleasant and say, you know, you know, I'd rather not be involved in this. I, you know, but let let the D, let the doctor or if if the if they allow the doctor with you know the lead vet tech or the inventory, let them do all the talking. Yeah, to, to the point that we have scripts now that we leave at the front desk for some of our larger places that have been hit so many times. Oh, that's and, smart. Right, that they pull. Oh, it's DEA. They pull the book out. This is what I'm supposed to say, and they read it. Yeah, that's all I want them to do. I don't want them saying anything else other than what's on the script. Yeah, so makes so much um, sense. Yes. Well, Jack, I really appreciate your time, your expertise, your knowledge, your stories, all of it. I know. Can you believe it? (laughs) So. If people are like, okay, I am like so stressed about my DEA compliance, I can't even see straight, or they just want a second set of eyes, where can they learn more about you, your services that you offer at Titan Group? How can they learn more about you and get in touch? Okay. So the easiest thing is to go to our website, 
which is uh, com. That's um, you go there. There's we have a cool little uh, tool on there uh, that you can. It's a risk assessment. You can go on and, and it's, I think it's six or seven questions and unbelievably answer them truthfully. And we'll get a good score of, of the idea of where your your state of DEA compliance is. So um, and if anybody has an absolute emergency, which we've had several late, lately and um, and you need to get a hold of somebody immediately. Um, you can, you can certainly, you can reach out to me direct. You can call me if you have to, um, three, four, seven, seven, two, three, eight, zero, one, nine. Um, you know, I give that out, you know, hoping that you guys realize that that's for real emergencies right now. (laughs) Um, not just to ask me about, Oh, you know, how do we do this? I get enough of those. We we can, we can handle that too for you. But, um, but it, it, and I always say that, you know, in two days, something's going to happen when I do one of these things. And it just seems to inevitably someone calls and goes, you're not going to believe this. Right. They showed <laughs> yeah. up at my place. And yeah. I will link all of your links to your website and to the assessment down below. And oh. for all those listening, we are having a very fun webinar coming up. So, um, Go ahead and I will, of course, send out all the information about that. So keep that on your noggin. And Jack, I really appreciate your time and your expertise. It was so much fun having you on the show. You're welcome. I always, always enjoy having my times with Nicole. (laughs) I agree. All right. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Inventory Nation podcast and spending your time with me. I know your time is valuable and in short supply. So it truly is an honor. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe or leave a review. Be sure to visit vetlogic.co slash podcast to access the show notes and discover additional links and resources. See you next time.